0: Well, this morning, if you have your Bible, go ahead and take that out. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd love to give you one of those little blue ones that are really hard to read. Um, But if you do have your Bible or your phone and you want to pull up your app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today, as Sarah read for us. Thank you, Sarah. Um, And the past few weeks, we have kind of circled back to um, Matthew chapter 3 and 4, and we've kind of been working our way through this, this section of Scripture Um, just just to kind of revisit a section that we missed the first time we went through Matthew, after we finished Romans, and we're getting ready to move on to something else. But for now, we get to enjoy Matthew chapters 3 and 4, and today we are in the the back half of chapter 4. So the past few weeks, a few weeks ago, we talked about um, things like uh, Matthew chapter 3, which talk about Jesus' uh, baptism, like John the Baptist showing up on the scene, John the Baptist declaring this message of repentance, baptizing people, in this message of repentance, and then Jesus shows up to John the Baptist and says, hey, I want you to baptize me, and John's like, that doesn't make sense. That, why would I baptize you, right? But Jesus is uh, affirming this message of repentance, and he's affirming what John has been saying, that in fact, he is the one who was to come. He is the one who's on the scene now that John had been preparing the way for, and then immediately after that in chapter 4, we see Jesus go out into the wilderness where he is then tempted, right? the, the enemy shows up, Satan shows up to him while he's in the wilderness, he's fasting for 40 days, tries to catch him at sort of what he might think is a weak moment, but of course we saw how Jesus just absolutely destroys him with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God empowering him to overcome the temptation. So Jesus in that moment, as we saw, does what we are unable to do. In the face of the enemy, in the face of temptation, on our own, in and of our own selves, of our flesh, we do not overcome temptation. But Jesus overcomes it for us. As we see later in in Hebrews 4, where it talks about our great high priest who was faced with the temptations that we were faced with, yet he did not sin. So he understands our position. He understands what it's like to face it. But he provides for us in that moment we can't provide for ourselves the overcoming of that temptation and he gives it to us as our great high priest and so immediately following that we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 and what we see here is actually from the from the end of verse 11 to the the beginning of verse 12 it appears that there's probably a, a, a good amount of time that elapses between those two verses if we just kind of read straight through, it might seem like it's, it's, it's unfolding sort of like in a chronological way, but actually when we look at the, the, the scope of all the Gospels, we see that that's probably not the case. There's, a, there's probably a significant amount of time because when we, so one of the beautiful things about the way that God has given us Scripture, He's given us these four books right at the beginning of the New Testament called the Gospels, right? These are, these are the accounts of Jesus' life and His ministry, The accounts of what he what he did, what he said, but it's not the account of everything that he did and that he said. In fact, in fact, John says like if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, it would we would wouldn't be able to read it all in in all of our lifetimes. Like there's just so much stuff that Jesus said and did, but but God gives us information. He gives us the right amount of information. He gives us what we need to know, and he doesn't give us. uh, He gives it in a way that's sort of almost like a biography. If we were to Maybe write a biography about someone today. Like, let's say we're going to write a biography about uh, George Bush. We would be able to go back and look at every waking moment of George Bush's life, and we could we could give you it's, it's his his term during his presidency. Probably every moment of that was was written down and logged in chronological order. So we could we could we could present that and say, "Hey, look, here's the the biography of George Bush." But that wouldn't actually be the biography that would just be the chronological log of his activities and and that if we if we think about the gospels as a chronological log of jesus activities we're kind of kind of miss some of what the essence of what god is trying to communicate to us so some of these things are given to us in chronological order but that's not the highest priority the highest priority is not here's every waking moment of jesus life and ministry He's trying to he's trying to give us a sense of who Jesus is as a person, as, as God in flesh. That's the that's the higher priority given. So when we we look at things like this and we go like, wait a second, like what's happening here? It seems like some of this stuff's out of order. It seems like uh, John over here, he he's he's saying that this story happened sort of this way, and and Luke's maybe telling it like a little slightly different, or they're emphasizing the words a little differently, and it's like it can cause us to kind of maybe get like hung up, but it's like, whoa, whoa, that's not the point. The point is not that we're looking at, we're matching up the logs. We're, we're What we're reading are accounts of people who in, encountered Jesus and encountered his teaching. And they're, and they're telling us about who he is. They want us to know who Jesus is. Not just, not simply just what he did. And there's a big difference there. And so when we read this, we see, okay, there's this gap here. But God, in His mercy, in the way that He constructed Scripture, He gives us, we're able to compile information from the other books. So we see this gap between 11 and 12, and it's like, oh, there's, a, there's this gap of time here. Wait, John got arrested? How, what happened there? Like, oh, we see if we read over in uh, John, we can actually see more of what happened. What happened to John? How did he get arrested? Even later in Matthew, it talks about how, how, what happened to John and how he got arrested. So we begin to like put, this is, this is some of the importance of, of John's class, right? We, we learn some of these tools. We learn some of the, the, uh, the inferences of Scripture and the way that Scripture is composed and, the, and the, the point of the Scriptures. And it helps us to better understand what we're reading and, and why it's important to us, what it means for us. And what we see here, as we make this shift into verse 12, we see that Jesus' ministry is, is taking Sort of a turn; it, it's taking a turn um, from what we had seen. Because if we if we stop there at the end of uh, the temptation of Jesus, where he's out in the wilderness, he had been he had been baptized. There's sort of this declaration of, "This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased." And he goes out. But if we look at the beginning of the book of John, we see a little bit about what happens in between that time. Jesus' ministry at that time seems to be a little more low key. What, he's a little more low profile after his baptism, after his temptation. This is where we see the accounts of things like uh, when he turns water into wine. He's at this wedding, he's just with his family and his friends, and, and they obviously know at this point something about who he is. His mom, Mary's there, and she's like, we're out of wine, Jesus. And she's like looking at him, right? And, but what it's interesting what he says to her, right? What does he say? He says, my hour has not come. Go Wait a second why would he say his hour has not come? He's like, he's been baptized, he's been out in the wilderness, he's overcome the temptation. Like, what does he mean by that? If anyone would, we would honestly look at that and go, it seems like your hour has kind of come. Like, this is kind of time to, like, get after it, right? But Jesus knows, right? Jesus knows in the wisdom of God, in the plan of God, how things are supposed to unfold and the timing in which they are supposed to unfold. And he has, he has this perfect wisdom And he says, my hour hasn't come. And this is insightful for us as we we see this transition into verse 12. And we see this transition to Jesus' ministry becoming more public. This is our first point for the day. That Jesus' ministry takes this turn into like a more public-facing ministry at this time. But when we read this first verse, it can be kind of confusing for us. Look at verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. It's like, okay, it kind of sounds like you're saying the opposite of him being more public in his ministry. Like, hold on. Right, so, so what do we see here? One, we see that, one, John the Baptist has been arrested. That's a pretty big deal. Right, Matthew here in this part doesn't give us a lot of details. He gives us later some details. But he just says here that... that John has been arrested. And Jesus seems to be here kind of sort of reacting to the fact that John had been arrested. It says that Jesus heard about this and he reacts to it. And it says that he withdraws. It says that he withdraws into uh, Galilee. Now, later we know that the circumstances of John's arrest. John was arrested for actually continuing to do what he was already doing he was preaching a message of repentance and the reason why he got arrested was that he continued to preach this message of repentance but he preached this message of repentance to someone who could actually do something to him if they didn't like what he said and so he goes he's actually going to one of the rulers at the time herod and he's saying to herod herod the way that you are living is wrong you need to repent He's, asking, he's telling him that he needs to repent of his sexual ethic. He's like, what you're doing is wrong, you need to repent. Herod doesn't like it, and he has John arrested. But John was simply keeping consistent with the message that he had preached all along, his message of repentance. And that's important for us to remember, both for our sakes as we look at, okay, this is a good lesson for us to to be consistent with our message of repentance, even to the face of people who may be able to inflict great harm to us if they don't like what we're saying. If we're calling these people to repentance, if Jesus is asking us to preach the message of repentance, we need to be consistent with that message, even in the face of potential harm to us. But Jesus hears this, and it says that he withdraws. And we might hear that and we, think, and we might be tempted to think that this meant that Jesus was scared. Maybe Jesus was afraid. Maybe he didn't want to face the same fate that John faced. But clearly this isn't the case. It seems more likely that Jesus was, in his wisdom, simply just better positioning himself. This withdrawal is not him going to run away and hide. This withdrawal is, is basically him Better positioning himself to do, to move forward and to advance with the ministry that God had given him to do, the Father had given him. And this positioning and the, the places that he goes, the, where he goes next, is, is very clearly, as we will see, not just coincidence or by happenstance. There's a, there's a reason that we see this. Look at verses 13. Look at verse 13 here. It's not by accident at all. It says, And leaving Nazareth, He went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were two tribes, of the original tribes of Israel and the lands that they had settled in. This this is the region that he's talking about. (coughs) And then in verse 14, notice what it says. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Ah, okay, so we see the reason why Jesus is withdrawing. The reason why he's positioning himself is, be- is one, because he, in his great wisdom, he's positioning himself to advance the cause, but it's secondarily and alongside of that, he's doing this because it is a fulfillment of the prophecy which says he was going to do exactly what he's doing. He's unfolding himself more and more as the promised Messiah. This is who he is. And we see this prophecy was foretold back in Isaiah chapter 9. And this is sort of an abbreviated quotation of, pa- of that passage in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And this is another instance of a pattern that we see. This is a pattern that Matthew is using because if we remember Matthew primarily is teaching originally to a Jewish audience. He's writing to people who would have, who would be largely Jewish people or people interested in the Jewish in and around the Jewish faith. So they have a great awareness of these things. So he's he's constantly referencing back to prophecies and promises of God and how Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies and promises of God. And this is one of those instances where Matthew's pointing back and saying, Look, you remember when you grew up reading Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, do you remember how it said that this per, the, the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to go to this place, and the and all the and they're like, yeah, we remember that. He's like, well, this is what's happening. This is what Jesus did. He's going to this place. And like, oh, okay, like it, he's helping the, the light switch to come on for the people who would be reading this, and for us too, as we have the Old Testament. So he he, he commonly uses this theme, this theme of promise and fulfillment, promise of God, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise if we look here at the prophecy itself in verse 15 again this is a reference back to isaiah chapter 9 It says the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan galilee of the gentiles all of that is important all of that stuff is 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 giving us clues it's giving us insight and it's, and it's given to us on purpose. And it says, the, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So let's, let's put ourselves as a, a first century person, right? We're trying to think. Okay, these are places that they know. It'd be like us saying, "Okay, he went over to the Sciota, east of the Sciota, right to Lockbourne, and he was setting up shop in Lockbourne, right?" Like we're like, "Oh, like these places are going to trigger in our minds, like the realities of what those places actually are." So when they say things like, "the, the people there that were dwelling in darkness, they they're going to see a great light." This, is, this has meaning. This has importance to them because they can recognize those places. They know the significance of those places. And this area of Galilee, this area that he's describing, this is, this is the area that Jesus kind of sets up shop for his ministry. This is kind of his home base where he, he kind of runs his ministry out of this, this place. And this is a significant region because this is, this is sort of the northern part of the Jewish world at that time. Okay, this, is, this is right on the sort of the northern border where it would have been right on the border of Jews and Gentiles. So you would see this sort of mixture in these places. So when it's talking about this light dawning, it's pointing to the fact that, that Jesus' work in his ministry would include both Jews and Gentiles. He's expanding sort of the border. He's further expanding the borders. Of, of the ministry that God has given him to do. This was the plan of God all along. This isn't a new thing that is just a surprise to them, but we're seeing it unfolding right before our eyes. Jesus is bringing light to the Jews and the Gentiles. This was part of the promise. This is part of the prophecy. The prophecy was given, and Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy right before their eyes. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8. He uses this same kind of language. If you remember, in John chapter 8, he uses uh, the, the I am phrases, all these I am phrases that Jesus used. This is one of them. He says, I am the light of the world. Again, triggering in the minds of the people listening. Oh, like I've heard that. I've heard that kind of language before, this, this idea of a light being given to the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what he says in in John chapter 8. And this is, this is Jesus further clarifying and further explaining out how God intends for the good news, the good news of the gospel, to be for all people. It's, it's expanding out, it's, it's, it's reaching the, the sort of culmination of what God had promised would happen all along. And it shows us how God is, is incredibly meticulous. God is incredibly meticulous in this sort of perfect outworking and unfolding of His plan. The things that He had said would happen are happening. And they're not just sort of happening. They're very specifically and accurately happening exactly the way that God had said that they would happen hundreds and hundreds of years before. They're getting to see and witness the actual promises of God happening right before their eyes and incredibly Significant ways. And it's showing us that God, in His wisdom, He knew the exact time, and the exact place to send the Messiah that would best accomplish the purpose that He had intended for that Messiah to come. The purpose of seeking and saving the lost. The, peop- the purpose of shining The light of salvation into the darkness of mankind. This is what's happening. They're watching it unfolding right in front of their eyes. And we get to look back and see how it unfolded. God could have left all of us in darkness. This is the reality. He could have, he could have left all of us in darkness, or he could have left most of us in darkness. He could have chosen to just let Jesus' ministry just be for the Jews could have very easily have done that but his intention has always been for the gospel to go into every tribe and every tongue this is God's intention even back to the promise of Abraham he says his intention was that all nations would be blessed by the one who would come through Abraham's line all nations. This is, a, this is God's intention. This is God's intention for every culture, every tribe, every tongue, all peoples to know and experience and hear the good news of the gospel. This is significant. He's bringing light into the darkness of the world. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And he's taking it to the next level here. And as Jesus is beginning to ramp up what he's doing, We see sort of this ramp up to his ministry, right? He's baptized, he's tempted, he starts sprinkling in a couple miracles, and then all of a sudden, like, okay, we see this, like, full go time. And we see that here in verse 17. Look what it says. It says, And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the shift. This is where he he shifts it fully into gear, and his ministry starts to take off. So up until this point, he had already been baptized. He had already called his disciples to to follow him. He had already gathered people around him. He had already done miracles, turned water to wine. But now it's saying, we're getting this picture of, okay, yeah, that's, those things have already happened, but now Jesus is ramping it up, right? He said, from this time on, from that point on, what's he doing? He's preaching. He's declaring this message of repentance, echoing what John had already been saying, and further exploding it out and saying, repent, not that the kingdom of, of heaven will be coming, which is what John was saying, John was saying, repent, because the one is coming. And Jesus is saying, repent, because the one is here. He's saying, it's time. It's happening. And he began to preach. He he began to declare the message of repentance. He began to declare that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was happening. The one who had been promised was here. The one that you had read about in Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, He was here and he was he was getting after it (laughs) he wasn't he wasn't laying in the background anymore he wasn't learning in the temple like when he was a kid he wasn't working with his dad as a carpenter he's like it's it's go time basically and he kicks it into gear and he starts preaching and teaching and declaring this message of repentance and this is important because it tells us The main substance of what Jesus' ministry here on earth was about. Jesus' earthly ministry was about preaching the good news. His ministry was not based on the fact that he had followers, he did have followers. His ministry was not based and built on the fact that he did miracles, he did miracles. those things happened but then it says and then he starts to preach he starts to declare he starts to 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 make the logos come forth the word of god come forth out of the word of god which was himself to the people this is the light that is shining into the darkness the miracles were not the light shining into the darkness a good teacher in the middle east who had gathered some disciples around him was not the light that was shining in the darkness message that he was going to bring based upon the work that he was about to accomplish on the cross and in his resurrection, that was the light that was shining in the darkness. There are others who gather people around them. There are others who who do miracles and tricks and fancy things. But those people, whoever they were, are not the light that is shining in the darkness. They are not the ones to bring the message of reconciliation to the world, to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. They couldn't do it. But we see here that Jesus is doing it. In his message, we see his message in the first word that he says. The primary point that he wants us to take away. It's not, look at all these fancy things I do. It's not, look how I calm the sea. It's not, look how I turn the water to wine. It's not, look how many people are behind me. What does he say? He says, repent. First, the first thing that it, says, it tells us, his message was repent. Repentance is a fundamental part of Jesus' message. He's not just simply teaching about repentance. He is doing that. But he's not simply just teaching us about the concept of repentance. He's not just suggesting the importance of repentance. He is declaring, preaching to everyone that will hear him, to obey the command of repentance. This is, what, this is the way in which he is, he is saying this. This isn't a suggestion. It's not a teaching point. It's not just information that he's wanting to share. This is the God of the universe who has put on flesh and has come down to, to earth, and he is giving a command. And that command is what? Repent. That's his command. Oftentimes I think we we, we may not, I think I'm, maybe sometimes I do this. I don't read, read that like Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. I, I don't necessarily immediately interpret that as a command. Maybe a suggestion, maybe a good point, maybe like a good like, helpful self-help kind of a thing like oh you know what like like when i you scroll through your feed and it's like you should do an ice bath and you should take these vitamins and it's like oh okay that'd be nice i should maybe get around to that someday maybe that's just me i'm a 40 year old guy those are the ads that i'm getting you need to take vitamins like okay geez like your hair is probably falling out here's a pill it's like it is but go easy But this isn't that. This isn't an advertisement for repentance. This is a command that Jesus is giving to everyone everywhere. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, would have been a significant phrase. It would have been something that would have caught the ear of the people listening. Kingdom of heaven sort of communicates this full realization of what every, all the Jewish people had been hoping for. Everything that they've wanted to see. All the promises that they've been told. The Messiah is coming. All these things are going to happen. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, that thing that you have in your mind that you, that you want to see happen, it's here. It's at hand. So this is a big deal. He's, he is announcing that he is there, but he's doing more than that. He's telling them that, that everything that they had hoped and wished for, is happening it might not look exactly like they had envisioned it themselves but it was in fact happening right before their eyes and he's proclaiming it he's declaring it he's not wishing it'll happen he's not saying this is what i hope to accomplish in my ministry i have this three-year plan that i want to lay out before you and i hope that you would join in with me it's not what he's doing he's not pleading for them to to come and join his cause he's declaring what is happening saying, it's, it's happening. <laughs> so you have one response to what is happening. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you have one response to that. Repent. That seems like maybe a harsh word to our ears at first. Like, wow, okay. I thought Jesus was the nice guy. It's like, well, yes, but we have to be clear about what he's actually saying, what he's actually proclaiming in his message. proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and his instruction to them is not first rejoice you would think that that would be the first thing he would say hey guys guess what rejoice the kingdom of heaven is at hand they'd be like yes finally it's here he gets to that but there's a step before that because if if we don't we don't engage with the kingdom of heaven in the way that Jesus tells us to engage with the kingdom of heaven, there is no rejoicing. Does that make sense? There's no rejoicing if we, don't, if, we don't try to enter, if we try to enter into the kingdom of heaven apart from the way that Jesus tells us we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We will not be entering with rejoicing. And John was talking about this. John says this, John the Baptist says this back in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He's talking about Jesus. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's saying that, the ki- he's saying the kingdom is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. The one who's promised is coming. And he's coming to judge. He's coming to separate. This is what the picture that he's given us. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Separating the acceptable from the unacceptable. And that's a heavy word. If you knew that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Let's just say that we know that, because we do. And that with the kingdom of heaven comes judgment. Someone to tell you, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and with this kingdom of heaven comes judgment. It comes separation of right and wrong, separation of the wheat from the chaff, the acceptable from the unacceptable. What should be the rightful response? For us, for them, for us, for all of us. This is really, in fact, a command that Jesus is giving. What should be the rightful response? Well, Jesus tells us that the rightful response is to repent. There is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven without repentance. And we try to make, a lot of people, try to make the message of Jesus and the message of his ministry about many different things. People are always trying to like staple stuff onto that and say, hey, look, this is, what, this is what Jesus was trying to do. Try to make Jesus' message and his ministry sort of fit with whatever their preferences or their slant on life or their worldview or whatever their, whatever their hopes and desires are. There's a lot of people who are trying to do that, who are trying to sort of hijack Jesus and his message and his ministry and use it to sort of leverage whatever they want to do. But you cannot make sense of the message of Jesus. You can't use it. You can't make sense of it. You can't leverage it without the message of repentance. If what you're trying to communicate about Jesus and what he did is is not communicating primarily the message of repentance, then it's not the message of Jesus. It's something else. And the prophecy said, the prophecy of Isaiah said that a light would shine in the darkness. And that the people living in darkness would see this great light. And Jesus is saying, I am that light. I am the light. And the light that he shines is first an exposing light. When it first comes to us, in the way that God intends it to come to us, it is an exposing light. It shows us how dirty the room is. <laughs> you can walk around in a dirty room if the lights are off and you don't really notice it. Somebody kicks those lights on and you go, oh, this room is really dirty. This is the first thing that Jesus' light does. Is it, is it exposes the dirt. It exposes the darkness. Now, the light also helps us to clean it up. Right? But the first thing it does is it shows us the need to be cleaned up. It exposes us first. It exposes our sin. It exposes our need. It exposes our weakness. It exposes our rebellion. This is what the light of Jesus does it shows our need for him. And our only response to that is to repent, to turn. This is what repentance is. It's turning. It's changing. The Greek word is metanoia. Meta-noia. It's kind of the same root where we get words like metamorphosis. Repentance is renouncing what we were and becoming something new. Abandoning what we were and allowing... The, the exposing and cleansing light of Christ to change us and make us into something new. This is, what it, this is what it means in 2 Corinthians 5 when it talks about the old has passed away. If you are in Christ, the old has passed away. The light has been sh- shown on it and it is gone and the new thing has come. You are a new creation. There has been a change that has happened to you. Repentance is renouncing what we were and becoming something new. Not in our strength, not through our muscle, not through our discipline. It's abandoning ourselves in a way. Abandoning our uh, uh, self-justification. Abandoning our self-salvation. Abandoning our self-loathing. Abandoning our self-gratification. Abandoning ourselves and saying, I am done I am done trying to to carry this on my own. I'm done trying to, to get into the kingdom of heaven or run away from the kingdom of heaven or whatever it is that we're doing in our own strength, in our own flesh, in our own power. This is what it means when it says to turn, right? We turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's what Paul is referencing back to Jesus' baptism, right? God God speaks that over Jesus when He comes out of the water. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. And He's the one. This is the kingdom, right? He's the one who's in charge of this new kingdom. And when Paul's referencing that, he's saying that God transfers us by our repentance and faith in the work of Christ from the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is Jesus' message. Repent. And when we do this, we receive grace upon grace. In fact, it is even grace for us, God gives to us to even help us know that we need to repent anyway. We don't even recognize it apart from His grace to us to show us by His light. We're not the ones who flip the light switch on. God's the one who turns the lights on and exposes. And we go, like Isaiah did a few chapters before in Isaiah 6, right? When he, when he the lights come on for him, he goes, oh, I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips. He is immediately exposed, and he immediately repents, He falls. Jesus' message is repent. Our culture looks at us and says, you're enough. And Jesus says, you're not enough. Repent. Our culture says, trust your heart. Jesus says, your heart is deceitful and wicked. Don't trust it. Repent. Culture tells you to find the light that is within. Jesus says, there's no light within. I'm the light. Repent. That's it. That's his message. Repent. Turn to him. Run to him. Fall to him crawl to him, roll to him, stumble to him, just get to him. When he flips the lights on and we see and we're exposed, he doesn't, he doesn't look at us and say, get it cleaned up. He says, no, bring it to me. Bring it to me. I've already paid for it. I've already done it. This is his message. And this is our way of life. Repent. And sometimes this message is costly. It costs John the Baptist. It costs him his life. For for preaching the message of repentance. But Jesus' message of repentance is not calling us to trade one merciless master for another. That's not his message of repentance. We don't trade one yoke of burden and slavery for another yoke of burden and slavery. That's not what he's asking. His message of repentance is one that leads us to our greatest joy. He says, bring it to me. Why? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Are you laboring? Are you you laboring under the weight of your own sin? Are you laboring under the weight of trying to get into the kingdom on your own? Are you heavy laden? Then come to me. (laughs) My, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. His message of repentance brings joy. It brings peace. It brings eternal life. It brings hope. It brings love. All the things that we, deep in our hearts, most desperately want. Everything that our heart truly desires and longs for is found only when we recognize our weakness and we repent. We run to him and he receives us with open arms. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You've been trying to carry it on your own repent and trying to fix yourself repent and trying to live for god in your own strength repent repent from your striving and enter his rest that's what he's calling us to let's pray god we praise you this morning we thank you for your your grace we thank you for your great love for us we thank you for the light that has come God with us, Emmanuel, as we sung about this morning, that you have come to us, and you've brought the light to us. When we were in darkness, you have caused us to see this great light, and so we praise you this morning, and we ask for your help, that you would continue to expose our hearts to your truth, that you would continue to cleanse us by your word and your light, and God, if we don't know you, if we're in here and we don't know you, God, we pray that you would crack open the, the stone that we, uh, that is formed around our hearts, and you would give us that heart of flesh this morning. We love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.